You are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are going to talk about the hot topics in addiction medicine. We're going to discuss fentanyl use and the latest trends, cannabis use and the trends in cannabis, and we're going to talk about harm reduction and, and the racial and gender inequities in substance use and treatment. going to be a fantastic episode. We're going to get you up to date on everything in the world of addiction medicine. All right, Paula. So do you want to give us just a brief kind of update on some of the just latest kind of substance abuse trends? Yeah, so before we go into just these hot topics that you talked about, Darlene, we wanted to set the stage with reviewing some of the drug abuse statistics, which were released by SAMHSA. Now, this, of course, is a review of 2020 data. So we're waiting for data to come out from 2021. Uh, We have really disconcerting data emerging about overdose rates. We're up in over 100,000 overdose Uh, deaths relating to opioids, and now we're seeing increasing trends of overdose deaths from stimulants and stimulants plus opioids. So we'll, we'll talk more about that in the future, but briefly, drug use trends in 2020. What leads the way, of course, is marijuana or cannabis still. We're seeing a huge increase in this, and right now we have a 17.9, basically an 18% use of cannabis in the last year in Americans over age 12. Uh, Next in line is cocaine, which was kind of surprising to me. I didn't, I don't know, I guess I was in, if I was in the guessing game, I wouldn't have put cocaine next, but cocaine is next. Uh, We've got more of a lifetime use of that, but use of cocaine in the US is at 1.9% in the last year, followed by, here we go again, another surprise, but I mean, I guess it's not too surprising overall, tied with methamphetamine is ecstasy. Um, So we're seeing this increase in methamphetamine use. We've done several episodes on methamphetamine. It's very interesting. Followed by LSD use. Now, this, we're seeing a huge trend. Actually, excuse me, LSD use exceeds ecstasy and methamphetamine. We have LSD use at 1% in the past year, ecstasy and methamphetamine at 0.9% in the population, followed by heroin use at 0.3%. They do not record prescription opioids benzodiazepines or fentanyl, I don't think they make it on the chart. So we're just seeing these trends that we've been discussing over the year, including increased use of hallucinogens, which we're going to talk about briefly on the wrap-up, the massive increase in cannabis use. And then during our podcast this past year, please look at our episodes on cocaine and bath salts and several episodes on methamphetamine. Otherwise, we're going to go through the wrap-up. So hit it, uh, Darlene, let's talk about What's been going on in the last year with fentanyl? For those of you that are new, what it, you know, fentanyl, it's a highly addictive and potent synthetic opiate. Just to give you a little bit of perspective, this is 50 times more potent than heroin and 100 times more potent than morphine. And there was a really fascinating article, and I think I just sent this to you over the weekend, Paula, that the DEA just, this was a, I think it was in the San Diego Tribune or something that they just seized uh, like 
just massive amounts of these fake prescription pills. That's what's all over the news is these fake prescription pills. But they're finding that like six out of the 10 of these prescription pills are contain fatal doses of fentanyl. And it's not just these fake opiate pills. You're finding them in benzodiazepines and these again. And then also 56,000 people that died from overdoses those those overdoses involved a synthetic opiate. So on the CDC website, it was talking about just the amount of seizure rates. And we're talking in the like 9 million counterfeit pills that are being seized that are containing um, like m- amounts of fentanyl enough that can cause an overdose. So this isn't just a minor problem that we're just seeing in small pockets. This has become a a crisis level that we're looking at. So you're hearing a lot about that. If you're not seeing it, it's happening. We see this, anyone who is like, and a lot of us that are are treating patients either, either in the prison population or patients who are coming out in the that we're seeing on parole and or patients in you know these transition periods this is such an interesting phenomenon that i really feel like i was naive to this until this past year but because of our point of care testing that does not typically pick up on fentanyl patients are using I see patients that go from heroin or opiate use and then are changing to strictly fentanyl. I don't know how often are you encountering this, Paula, but I am seeing an increased amount of this of straight fentanyl users. And it's really alarming because we know because of the potency, again, that I talked about at the beginning. So that's another trend that's been on the upward swing since 2018. And they're seeing that. So we talked about this already, but they are reporting that oh, that half of the unintentional methamphetamine deaths reported last year, so this was in 2021, involved fentanyl. So this is from the CDC website. And, and the number of opiate overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids in 2020 was more than 18 times the number since 2013. So that's just kind of give us that this global issue of how how fast this is just escalating. The other issue that I'm really seeing with fentanyl, and this is when, you know, if you just, if you log on to just even the message boards on ASAM, it's providers. This is for us, like treatment considerations. What do you do? Like we we're seeing these patients, number one, what I talked about before that they are going to straight just fentanyl use. And then how do you manage that? So or if you have patients who are not necessarily, don't even know that they're getting it, but then you're having these complicated withdrawals. So I've seen that where you have like providers going, you know, I have a patient who's coming in here for what they say is benzodiazepine and alcohol use, but then we're having these really complex, complicated withdrawal and we're suspecting possibly fentanyl use or they're coming in here with, you know, either daily or intermittent fentanyl use. Often these patients are needing higher doses of buprenorphine than normally we would do. Sorry, we actually don't seem to have 
very much heroin down in the rural area that I'm in right now, which is unusual, all pure fentanyl. When I say pure fentanyl, I mean synthetic fentanyl. So, you know, it's a huge issue. Like you said, we're seeing methadone being used and it's more helpful, I think, because we have greater variability of dosing. And, you know, folks are having many more overdose events and it's requiring more to resuscitate them. So it's a devastating situation because fentanyl is so potent. Obviously, it gives us bigger elevation and, and, you know, an effect too. So could you say it's more addictive? You probably can. So very tricky and very distressing. Like you said, people and our listeners on the East Coast are probably eye-rolling a bit saying, what, what are you guys talking about? We've been seeing this for years and we're only catching up now in the Midwest and the Mountain West for fentanyl. Luckily, we were shielded from it for a good while, but now it's all over this country. Uh, and I know it's up in Canada as well. I'm not sure what it's like globally, but definitely a devastating situation that we're in. And we need to move forward with much more aggressive drug testing for um, people who use drugs. They need to have access to that need to have access to unlimited naloxone. I'm hoping that naloxone becomes over-the-counter, so there's a lot about that in the news. And we need to continue to educate people, educate the community, and then utilize harm reduction techniques so that people feel like they can enter treatment on their own terms as opposed to us standing on one side of the fence while people continue to use these very dangerous substances, especially if they don't want to use them anymore or are interested in using them in a less risky way. Absolutely. All right, Paula. So update us on like what is new in the world of harm reduction you just got back from the conference on this and it was fantastic tell us all about that well i went to the i had the honor of going to the national harm reduction conference for the united states it was held in puerto rico was it was really informative enlightening depressing in a lot of ways because we realized you know, how far we need to come, especially as a medical community, really opened my eyes because there were very, there wasn't much representation from treatment uh, providers there, especially of the MD, DO, PA, NP variety. It was mostly grassroots organizations working on the streets, providing this vital service. And there is definitely an attitude towards treatment providers of, of some even animosity of like, you guys don't do your part, you don't provide the treatment that people really need in terms of meeting them on their terms. And it was it was eye-opening to me. There's also some really very, very good, informative and enlightening sessions on colorism and gender inequities, um, the way we treat trans uh, people, gay and lesbian communities in terms of drug use, and just opening my eyes to a new way of involving people who use drugs in your treatment planning and in your clinics and having user committees, having advisory boards that that um, are sat on by people who currently use drugs and know their world and need to have a say in how treatment looks for them. And yes, it was really an honor and I hope to continue to learn from organizations such as the National Harm Reduction Coalition. In terms of updates, well, briefly, you know, we've had, like we said, we've had more um, overdoses, harm reduction services are becoming more and more available and accessible. We now have the strong backing from CDC and SAMHSA. Um, CDC and SAMHSA are coming out with, with all these recommendations. They're citing data. We actually have an, um, the National Harm Reduction Technical Assistance Center. So this is a collaboration between the CDC and SAMHSA. So for any of you who are listening who want to learn more, 
about harm reduction, or if your organization wants to implement harm reduction and you need assistance, you can go through the National Harm Reduction Technical Assistance Center, look it up on the CDC website, or just Google that term, and you can get free technical assistance for your organization because we know that harm reduction decrease, decreases overdose fatalities, decreases infections, decreases chronic disease contraction. It increases uh, facilitation into treatment, which is not the primary goal, but of course, we know that people are five times more likely to enter treatment if they're offered harm reduction services. And they're also three times more likely to use, to stop using drugs if they're offered just a purely harm reduction um, approach. So updates um, in terms of harm reduction around the country, I'm talking about the US only, you know, safe consumption sites or overdose prevention rooms continue to be a hot topic as we know their efficacy is um, is surrounding you know reduced overdose, reduced criminality, and uh, you know as we provide sterile um, equipment, people have less chance of contracting infections. We have robust data now. There's several systematic reviews summarizing the effectiveness and safety of these organizations, and uh, you can definitely seek the data on this. Right now, we have two safe consumption sites in New York. Um, and unfortunately, there were nearly going to be implemented in California, but their governor, Governor Newsom, vetoed a bill in August. So we all need to work towards this as an addiction community, as a primary care community, as a behavioral health community, or whether in law enforcement, education, um, the judicial system, at looking at the science and the research behind this technique of having people come to a safe space, having them linked to services, making sure that we can provide overdose prevention right there on the spot. There's some good resources from the Harm Reduction Journal. And again, look at the CDC website. Another big thing that made the news and is blew up on Twitter um, are so, excuse me, safer smoking kits. So, you know, those of us who've world, worked in the syringe exchange world or the SSP world, we're very familiar with syringe exchange, needle exchange, and of course, needle exchanges go back in time. And we recognize the need for clean syringes, clean needles for people who inject drugs to reduce their contraction of infectious diseases, reduce um, local infections, etc. Now, what we haven't talked about much historically is how do we make smoking drugs safer? And also the fact that smoking drugs is safer than injecting drugs, even though, of course, smoking drugs still has its risk. So we're not talking about safe smoking. We're talking about safer smoking. Safer smoking kits were passed in a bill, you know, in a kind of a federal uh, discussion. There was a lot of pushback about this, but really the need for clean pipes and equipment that come with that, including steel wool or rubber bands, alcohol wipes, hand wipes, really reduces the chance that people will share pipes and share these other equipments, which reduces the chance of burns, cuts, and then you can contract infectious diseases from shared pipes. Of course, you can contract respiratory illnesses. You can hear from my own voice that I am afflicted right now. However, it was not from sharing a smoking kit. It was probably from a four-year-old but also reduces the chance of contracting diseases like tuberculosis and hepatitis C. So there's a lot to be said about this. If you run a robust harm reduction program, you'll know about safer smoking kits. If you're in primary care and you're thinking, I've never heard of that, jump online, look it up. There are resources about it. You can educate yourselves and you can begin talking to your patients who use drugs about these options. And you'll be amazed at how they open up to you as they can trust you as a provider who really understands what they need to keep them safe while they're still using. 
Okay, last thing about uh, harm reduction that I wanted to say is there's been a huge amount of federal money that have been funneled into our system here in the US regarding harm, harm reduction. So about $10 million. I mean, when I say huge amount of money, $10 million is actually not that much. <laughs> When we look at how much money goes into other programming, but we're not going to talk about that right now. $10 million has been set aside for the use between 2022 and 2025. This is called the Harm Reduction Grant Program, and it's actually been set up under Section 2706 of the American Rescue Plan Act, okay, which was passed last year. So it's that exact act is not subject to the syringe funding restrictions. So throughout time, since syringe exchange programs have been authorized around the country, they tend to be managed on the state level. Federal funding of syringes and needles has been explicitly excluded. So you cannot buy, use funds from federal sources to actually buy what is considered drug paraphernalia. This is a huge issue because syringes and needles are very expensive. And if you're trying to buy boxes and boxes of McKesson, you know, uh, needles, I mean, where does that money come from? You're not billing your clients, right? And especially grassroots organizations, which most of the SSPs are in this country, they're desperate for money and desperate for funding. So we're looking forward to getting more money that comes directly to harm reduction programming. We hope that the distribution of this money is equitable and not just to programs who have good grant writers and who can write fancy grant applications. The money needs to go to these programs who really need it and who are doing the work. And we hope that there's a lifting of the federal ban on funding syringes and needles for all SSPs moving forward so that people who are the benefactors of federal funding, who we can actually use the money to provide this service, which reduces harm to communities by you know, helping safe disposal, reduces infections such as HIV and hepatitis C, thus reducing overall healthcare costs and reduces overdoses. So those people who may be politically opposed to using federal money for this kind of thing, we can actually look at the money around it and see that it actually saves money in the end because we reduce these very expensive complications from drug use. So that's my rapid wrap up on harm reduction. There's a lot more to be said. And of course, never forget naloxone when you're talking about harm reduction. And remember that harm reduction is a state of mind. It's a philosophy and it's a respect and it's a preservation of the dignity for people who use drugs. Don't forget that. Learn more about it. You can do trainings on harm reduction and become better at it in your organizations. Thank you, Paula. That was fantastic. All right. So cannabis, this comes as a request. We can't do a wrap up without talking about cannabis because it's always in the news and we get so many questions on this. So cannabis is legal for adults and 21 legal for recreational and medical in 21 states and in Washington, D.C. It is legal as medical cannabis in 38 states and D.C. And then we went into this a little bit, but this is from 2021, and we saw the most increased use. So this is from the Monitoring the Future study. So this, this looks at past year, past month, and daily use. So, and when we talk about daily use, this is use on 20 or more occasions in the past 30 days. It reached its highest levels ever recorded since trends were first monitored. So this study started in 1988. So this is the highest level since we began recording. The proportion of young adults who reported past year 
past year cannabis use reached 43% in 2021. This was a significant increase from 10 years ago, 2011, which was at 29%. Other trends that we have been seeing among this was the mental health effects that we continue to see. We've talked about this in previous episodes, but there was a study that came out in January of this year, and this was from Ganache et al., and this was published in the Journal of Psychiatry. This talked about the, this was self-reported psychosis, but the authors reported a 2.5-fold increase in the prevalence of self-reported psychosis compared nationally. So, that's really interesting just by itself. If you remember when we first talked about cannabis with Dr. Hal, we also see that genetic vulnerability for people who have an inherited risk for schizophrenia. So that's when we get into that epigenetics a little bit. You have that increased risk. So wow. when you start seeing these levels of use, we were seeing this increase. So uh, the pregnancy implications from the ABCD study, so the longitudinal findings from the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study. So this was published in the Pediatric JAMA, published in September of 2022, showed increased cannabis use among pregnant women. So this was from 3% in 2002 up to 5.4% in 2019. And this was according to NASDA. And the main implication that this is showing is that previous analysis using the baseline data from the ABCD study showed an association between prenatal cannabis exposure and behavioral problems in children. And this is at nine to 10 years of age. So what, what this is showing is a, a long-term effect, not just prenatal and that postpartum, that early postpartum period. This is showing long-term effects. And what they're starting to see is a possible association with like a attention, learning, and memory are the three like things as far as like with cognition. That's just a few of the latest kind of research as far as hazardous use among cannabis. And then we are going to go back to Paula to talk about racial and gender inequities and substance use and treatment. Okay, this is this is really important. I mean, this is not new to 2022. None of this really is, but this is something that we just need to continue to talk about all the time, all the time, because these inequities are not acceptable. They're just not. So there are many inequities that exist in healthcare you know, access. We all know that. And we're trying hard, I think, in mental health and healthcare to try and reduce those. But in terms of substance use and treatment, there are several things that really stand out in the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. This is data that comes from 2015 to 2019. So this actually isn't even the most recent data. There's some interesting disparities between certain groups. So past year illicit drug use amongst people in the U.S., highest for people reporting two or more races and for American Indian or Amer Alaska Native people. 
Okay. And I'm just using the terminology directly in SAMHSA's report. So they report that 28.5 and 29, excuse me, 25.9% of either two or more races or American Indian or Alaska Native people have had past year illicit drug use, followed by Black people. So they, so basically, people of color lead the list in this country in terms of illicit drug use. What about illicit drug use disorder? So people who actually meet criteria. Again, people reporting two or more races, or then American Indian or Alaska Native are higher than any other racial and ethnic group. So 5% of people who are two or more race. And then for American Indian or Alaska Native, 4.8% of their population actually meet criteria for an illicit drug use disorder. That would be methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin. Let's talk about past year alcohol use disorder amongst people in the United States. Higher for American Indian or Alaska Native people than the estimates for all other groups. That is 8.3% of that population, as opposed to the next group, which are white people at 5.8%. That is a huge difference and it is not okay. We know that those of us who move with the, excuse me, work with these tribal communities are well aware of it. And we're well aware of the devastation it causes. And it's an intergenerational historical problem. And unless we begin looking at the historical trauma that has been perpetuated onto these people, we're not going to make any progress with this. That's a whole nother topic for another time. Now, who is the lowest group of substance use disorder? Asian people are, are always in the lowest category. When we look at substance use disorder as a whole category, so not only illicit drug use disorder, but looking at substance use disorder, which would also include alcohol and prescription, you know, medications that uh, fall under prescription drug use. Again, American Indian native populations from Alaska exceed all other groups at 11.2%. That means more than one in 10 people in those populations has an SUD. So I, I just am, I'm distressed about this. Okay, what about treatment utilization? Well, the triangle is flipped. White people are at the top of the pyramid when it comes to treatment utilization, which is no surprise. They had the highest um, estimate of past year illicit drug use treatment, uh, which was 23.5% of those who needed treatment actually got it, as opposed to uh, much lower rates for other racial and ethnic groups. Now. Uh, we do need to say that American Indian and Alaska Native people had higher estimated um, utilization of alcohol use treatment, which is good. It means that they're getting offered treatment and hopefully utilizing that through the systems in place that take care of those tribal communities. Let's talk about women. Women with opioid use disorder per night are much less likely to access treatment and other services are denied to them or not offered to them. So for example, uh, women are less likely to be prescribed buprenorphine or naltrexone for their opioid use disorder. They're also less likely to receive naloxone as often as men are when they overdose, which is really distressing. So there was a study uh, in 2016 that showed that women who were overdosing from an opioid were almost three times less likely to receive naloxone from EMS than men. That's terrible. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, and that's all in NIDA, right? Now let's talk about youth really quickly. According to not NIDA and AJAMA Pediatrics uh, study published in 2017, non-Hispanic, Black, and Hispanic youth were less likely to receive treatment with buprenorphine or naltrexone than were white youth. Okay, there's, I think there's a lot of reasons why that's true. So we've talked about women, we've talked about racial inequities, we've talked about youth. Let's talk about older Americans. Older Americans are in a 
increasingly large population who seek treatment for substance use disorder, and they often do not have access. We need to keep them in our minds. Um, and then one last issue is looking at retention and treatment. So Black Americans are studied and looked like they are less likely to finish substance treatment than are whites, and they're more likely to be terminated from treatment than white people. So there's something wrong with that. We need to look at that, and we need to look at the lack of cultural competency and sensitivity in healthcare and in our treatment programs as to why this is true, right? And we need to work on our cultural sensitivity in this regard. Um, there's also an interesting statistic that shows that Black Americans with opioid use disorder are much more likely to be offered methadone as opposed to white Americans who are offered buprenorphine. Okay, so what's that about? That is what I want to know. So keep those inequities in mind. We need to try and iron these out and make things truly equitable. Uh, I didn't talk about folks who are, have um, disparities when it comes to sexual orientation or preference as well as uh, gender preference, but uh, we can talk about that next time. That's great. No, really important information that I think is under-recognized. I think we just, as a bonus, just a little bit of the updates on hallucinogen use. It's just like the cannabis, as we see this perception of low harm, we see an increased use. It just, um, everyone, it's like, it just seems like this kind of like free for all. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So just the latest data, it's been really interesting because past year hallucinogen use has been relatively stable over the past few decades until 2020. We see this use started to increase dramatically. So 2021, you saw an 8% increase use among young adults in reported use in past year. And then you saw an all-time high of first use since, again, since we started the Monitoring the Future study in 1988. So by comparison, so they just went back five years, this was only 5% use of past year use. And type of hallucinogens typically that we're seeing among use, so we're seeing LSD, MDMA, mescaline, peyote, what they call shrooms or psilocybin and PCP. The only one interesting that we've seen maybe a significant decrease in use was MDMA or called ecstasy or molly, showing a significant decrease within one year. And so that we saw from both 5% in 2016 and then 2023%. And then also 3% in 2021. So oh, that's interesting because that's not that's different to what I was saying at the beginning of the episode where ecstasy and and uh, methamphetamine were like third on the list, actually fourth on the list. They're for... still, yeah. And this is from this is the summary from NIDA's website, but it's yeah. still it's, it's still common, it's but just it's decreased. not it's just not increasing. Okay. Yeah, well, it's just good. not, yeah, it's just not. It's not increasing comparatively like the other hallucinogens, which is interesting. So there's just that little nugget there. I think that's a wrap. All right. Happy 22. Until next time. 
hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.